if you're a programmer and you want to build an app, then build it. Uh, there's kind of this idea of faking it until you need to build it. You know, offer this feature that does some amazing thing. So like do that so that you start getting money in the door and then over time automate it once you've worked out exactly how you want the process to work. I basically said we have to redo the whole thing. I wish I would have learned that earlier to some degree because I was sometimes embarrassed about things. Pick yourself and know that, hey, I can build stuff too. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Tanner Hearn proposed a total rewrite of the MusicBed licensing platform near his first week on the job. All this and more on Code Story. A gap used to exist in the world of music licensing. The quality of music available to project teams making promotional videos or materials or whatnot was pretty low. And for those composing music, getting paid was an untimely event where checks just sort of showed up in the mail. The MusicBed set out to change that by providing an online marketplace for music licensing. And in the beginning, Tanner Hearn took on the role as the first in-house developer with the job and goal to take the product to new heights as a well-engineered, scalable, and secure platform. Let's, uh, let's get to the meat. Let's talk about how you got started with MusicBed. So it was 2013. I was working at an agency at the time. A friend of mine uh, was friends with the owner of MusicBed, and we started talking, and basically they needed somebody who was able to come in and handle their technology. They were, MusicBed was a company that had been around for, I think, two years at that point. And they didn't have any technology resources. They were outsourcing everything to a company that was not based in the U.S., which we still work with companies not based in the U.S., but the main point was there that they didn't have anybody here to really handle things on their time zone or have anybody that was like full-time thinking about their product so just having an agency work on it that was again not in the time zone it made some things kind of challenging so they talked with me and essentially said hey we need somebody with your skill set and at that time music bed only had like five employees when i came on i mean there was a lot to be done but the gist of how I got started there was kind of a friend of a friend and their need and my experience matched up. So it was a pretty, pretty great thing. Awesome. So you, so you were essentially the first developer brought on, I guess, in-house. Is that, is that correct? Yes, for sure. Can you tell me and for the listeners to just give kind of a high level spiel about what music bed is? Yeah. So MusicBed is a music licensing company, meaning that we provide licensing of music for TV shows, commercials, advertisements, podcasts, and all of that. So we represent 
like 800 artists and their albums and compositions and we sell to filmmakers and creators like podcasters who are making media and anytime that you see a commercial on ESPN or if you're watching the Super Bowl uh, or watching a Netflix show we've placed music in a lot of it and so if you've heard music underneath it um, in an ad you know you, you're hearing the work of some artist somewhere and so we represent those artists and we've built a, a way to offer high quality music in a way that's accessible really in the past the biggest challenge was if you wanted accessible music you had to get poor quality music and if you wanted uh, really high quality music that meant that you had to jump through all these hoops to talk with the management or the label that that artist was on and so we tried to bridge those gaps and throw out all the bad stuff keep all the good stuff and allow filmmakers to come on the platform and I mean, essentially for a lot of use cases, they can check out in like 30 seconds and they have a legal right to use that music uh, in their product. So again, if it's a podcast or I'm sure plenty of people that are listening have seen like DMCA takedowns on YouTube. Um, that's happens when music or some other type of content is used in a video online and the person who uploaded that video didn't have the rights to use it, uh, didn't have the rights to use some piece of content in it. And so we deal with YouTube all the time now with our music and other content. So we, uh, we basically give licenses to YouTubers and they can use that music and know that they're legally covered. And we handle stuff like content ID, which is the system that YouTube has and Facebook now has a content ID system that says, hey, you're using whatever by this artist. Um, and we basically get a notification. And so it's kind of a broad spectrum of kind of the stuff that we deal with, but that's what Musicbed is, a music licensing platform. So, and you mentioned this a bit, but you're not just licensing music to, to you know, part-time YouTubers or freelancers on Fiverr, you you are you're you're working with big time clients, like like you said, ESPN, Netflix. Do you have any others you can you can throw out there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. We have kind of a list of logos on our site um, too. So if if anybody's interested, you can go to musicbed.com and see some of. Uh, we have a reel on there, so you can see a lot of stuff. But McDonald's, I think we've done stuff for the X Games, the Olympics, Netflix, Amazon Prime Video. Hulu. There's been several like big production studios in Los Angeles, like Lionsgate and all that stuff. So it's, it kind of runs the gamut because we do, we've also started work, working with a lot of big YouTubers too. Uh, we just recently released a video with Sam Colder, who's a YouTuber. Yeah. We're just kind of trying to help any creator who needs music in their product to tell a better story. I mean, podcasts is something I'm really interested in too. So we really want to get more podcasters on a subscription because um, it really changes things whenever a podcast uses great music. Um, I've heard a lot of podcasts that don't use great music and it doesn't, it's not awesome. So, so, so you built, you know, join this company, join Musicbed. You're, you're one of the, if you're the first developer brought on in house and you, you build this, 
marketplace to connect musicians licensing, creating and licensing their music with uh, vendors or individuals or whoever wants to purchase a license for that music. Tell me, tell me about the, the, the MVP. Tell me about, you know, you, you came in and you took over a product um, and it probably was the MVP. What, what did you, what did you do first? You know, what, how long did it take you to do it? And what sort of tools did you use? First for like the overall messaging, when I came in, um, there was an MVP and it was built in PHP. It was procedural code. So it was really gross and very, 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 very difficult to manage. Um, and so there's a lot of negatives there. And like I said, the, the team atmosphere was one where there wasn't a team that was present in a sense that they were easily accessible. And so that made for some interesting communication challenges. But even more than that, like technically there were some pretty big problems because the code was slower than it really should be. It was not as secure as it needed to be, or it could have been, I guess I should say. It did the job. So I guess need and should are different words, but um, there were just a lot of gaps like that, that, that anybody analyzing it um, would come up against. And so, um, but what I've, I've kind of told several people this, it, it's important not to like push that under the rug and say like, oh, it's just a bunch of crap. Like it's no good. I can't believe this was even done this way because often I feel like technical people tend to want to try to achieve perfection in something. Um, whenever they write code, they want it to be pristine in every single way. And it ends up like taking longer and not getting the actual product to market. And I think as as technical people, we have to be able to hold the business in one hand and the tech in the other hand and kind of equally weigh them out because otherwise it's so easy to not go to market or to let the customers suffer because it's taking so long to get this feature out when it could be, you know, MVP minimum viable product. Like there's a way to get this thing out and it not to be like the full version and it can still be secure. It can still work in some capacity. Um, and so I think that that's what existed at the time. Um, it was an MVP. And so I'm going to get into some of like the negatives about it and I'll be critical of them. But I also think it's just important to like, not just, be super arrogant about it and because the thing the, the truth is like that app kept five people employed it employed me and it also paid hundreds of artists every month and allowed them to continue their lives and so and then that doesn't even count the, the filmmakers who had clients who were making films. So like there's filmmakers, there's musicians, there's employees of the company. All of these people are living and, and doing their, their work using this app. And so it served a really important purpose. So anyways, that's like a little bit of soapboxing, but I just think that that's worth saying to like the technical parts. Like what did I do when I came in? I basically said, we have to redo the whole thing. As much as what I just said is true, I also was like, cool, okay, and now let's do this a much better way. And 
there's a, a few practical things just again because i i, I want to make sure we go there i mean there were things like oh this app is not good these passwords are not stored in the most up-to-date way that's secure if this was ever compromised it would be really bad so even in the existing app um, i had our development team update that so without even rewriting the whole thing it was like we have to update this there were times when on the page there would be like database logs posting to the front end and i mean again i'm just trying to illustrate that it was a really bad situation it did get the job done but you don't want that happening because it's again for privacy and security reasons you don't want that stuff being visible by the public so in the long run i said hey we have to rewrite this and so i went on this journey trying to figure out what platform to use and um for probably about four months and i looked at ruby on rails i looked at php i looked at different platforms all over the place and at the time laravel was version three and so i researched laravel and it was like the first time that it like clicked for me and i was like oh wow okay this is how you build an application well on the web and Ruby on Rails was doing it too so I, I mean it, it literally was like Laravel with PHP or Rails with Ruby like that was the, that was the two things that I had in my mind right and I think they're still comparable I don't I'm not like a PHP fan or a, a Rails fan or, or anything like that like I would I would probably use either I have experience with PHP the most and although PHP has a bad rap I really do think that they're comparable now and Laravel is really, really, really up to the game in terms of quality. So I chose Laravel, and then as soon as we were about ready to ride it, version 4 came out, which was like a total rewrite of Laravel. So then we were like, okay, that's great. Let's kind of recenter ourselves. And then we wrote the app in Laravel 4, and it took about eight months. And so I hired a company out of London, which we still use today. They're a, a really great group of people. So we've had a a journey together now that's like almost six years long. So about eight months later, we were able to release the new version of Musicbed that was written in Laravel. We migrated all of our data over, including orders and all the artists, albums and songs and all of our tagging because we have genres and moods and characteristics and instruments and all these pieces of what make up a song. And then we also migrated over the search engine and all that to be a lot better. So that's kind of, that was that first giant step that first year. Sure. So you took, uh, you jumped in, you saw that, Hey, this is good. It's serving a purpose, but we can do it better. You chose a framework and you went forth rewriting the product or recreating the product with the new framework. How did you approach it differently? Walk me through that. Yeah, so the biggest differences was actually having a framework. So the previous one didn't have one. And so I think in today's terms, if somebody's listening, I feel like it would be pretty hard to avoid that these days. Just because whatever platform you're building on, if you're building for the web or you're building for mobile, you know, you're probably going to approach React and right on the web. Or you're going to do React Native on mobile or you're going to do Swift or java and you're going to be writing android or ios apps or something like that and they're going to have some pretty straightforward guides so it still can be done but the main things were just code organization so 
when it comes to a framework like Laravel, I think if, I'll first just say it's important to use a framework because a framework abstracts away a lot of the nitty gritty that really you don't need to think about because it's been thought out. And if you're using a framework that's open sourced, not only do you not have to think about it, but it gets better over time. With something like Laravel or like Rails, you're going to have people contributing to it. And every time that they find a bug in the framework or every time that they go, hey, it would be great to have this feature that you just like write one line of code and then you can do, do it now. Everyone benefits from it. And so sure, it's like, well, but then I have to follow a system and sometimes I wanna do like a custom thing. And I just don't think it's ever really worth it unless you're doing something very, 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 very specific like Tesla or something and you're creating your own autonomous driving chips, which they just announced like two days ago. So yeah, like that's the only case. So if you're working at Tesla, you have my blessing to do that or, or somewhere else. But like for 99.9% .9 of cases, choose a framework. I recommend Laravel, but choose any of them and use it because, you know, for us, it's like we could organize our code better and Laravel is based on MVC architecture. So model views and controllers um, is just a great thing to have. It, it, if I'm talking about our case where we're coming from an app that didn't have any structure. And so all of the logic is mixed in with the view information and the style. And so ultimately, yeah, I mean, we, we organized the code and then we did a security audit where we adjusted a lot of our data so that we were using up-to-date hashing methods for our passwords. We updated the way that we were sending information so that it was more secure. I think, I think during this time we brought everything up to operating over as uh, HTTPS. So every request had a security certificate that was encrypting it. So there's just a lot of things like that that brought it up to speed. So you rebuilt the, the product in Laravel, you launched it, it was up to snuff, up to code, much more secure, much more organized. Then, then what was next? Since then, it's been this cascade of release after release after release where we've just tried to prioritize what are customers needing, what are our artists needing. And so a big one for us was getting a really good payout system down so that our artists could get paid really, really easily. I mean, we it was really easy for them, I should say. I think, I think it had always been fairly easy. And we prided ourselves in always being on time because in the music industry, that's kind of a thing that isn't always the case or probably almost never the case. Sure. You never know when the money's coming. I know a lot of artists, even before I worked at MusicBed, who were like, yeah, I just get mailbox money. I never know when it's coming, but suddenly there will be this check in the mail. And so to them, it's like a bonus. But they it ends up being that. It's a bonus. Um, they can't really plan their life around it. They can't really expect to make their house payment based on it. And so it really kind of makes the lifestyle of a musician very up and down. And so for us, we were like, hey, we want to pay regularly every single month. You can expect the payment every single month. So we did that, but then it kind of put a lot of manual labor on the team up front 
I mean, that's really the way that you should always do it. I'm trying to remember who who said it. Uh, there's kind of this idea of faking it until you need to build it. And so make a human API, you know, offer this feature that does some amazing thing. And really all it is is like sending an email to like Sarah or John or something. And then they like do it for the customer and then it sends it back and it says, hey, your order's complete. And it looks like an automated system. So like do that so that you start getting money in the door and then over time automate it once you've worked out exactly how you want the process to work. And so that's kind of what that that was like for payouts and for, for other systems that we had. That was probably some of the stuff that we worked on back then. Literally, it was fake it till you make it. Yeah, and I mean, we were paying people, we were taking orders, we were selling songs and filmmakers were able to download those and use them in their film. So there wasn't like a ton of faking, but the faking is more just like don't it's is it manual or is it automated and it's always nice to have an automated system but usually what happens in my experience is that sometimes an idea is so it seems like such a good idea that it's like yeah well let's just go ahead and like spend the time and money building this whole thing out and then you realize like four months in after you already built it oh, well, we need to tweak this and tweak that and change this. And actually, for legal reasons, we can't do that. And customers hate this. And then you change the whole thing and it ends up being more expensive because now you're basically like having your engineers rewrite automation code on something that shouldn't have even been automated because it wasn't going to be there in the end. And it kind of fits in probably with my first comment, which is like engineers can do it and business people do it. Like engineers will go in and be like, I want this to be perfect. It has to be well tested. It has to have X, Y, and Z all part of it, um, or else I'm not gonna feel like my quality of work is is good enough. And then business people will say, well, we know what we need. Like we need ABC. Then like a week later, they're talking with the customer and they'll be like, oh, wait, wait no. Okay, actually it's A, B, and Q and then something else will happen a month later. And I mean, we're all on this journey together. And so we just have to be realistic about what we're experiencing as people and how our relationship is with our customers and with our product so that we're most efficient. And, and really that's kind of my biggest thing is like, when I recommend a framework, I'm saying use a framework because it's more efficient. When I'm recommending how to build something, like my advice is probably gonna end up being sometimes less technical than it is just practical because and like business minded because there are so many things that business people mess up and that programmers mess up because they're not thinking holistically about the whole process. Right. Sure. Uh, make, that makes sense. Tell me, tell me about how you built the team. So if you were, you were a developer, number one, you were responsible for bringing on or interfacing with the the offshore team, but you, you know, you obviously progressed into leading an engineering team. Tell me how you went about the process of choosing, you know, the winning horses on your team. Yeah. So at first we, we hired the, the company that, that we started it with at the beginning. Like I said, they're a bunch of awesome people. And over time, I mean, it literally was just like conversations and it seems like the best people are the people that you meet in life, you know? Um, I haven't had a ton of success of just like reaching out for 
resumes and then getting them. Um, I started Laravel DFW and part of that was just to meet people of like mind. And then also it was just to, you know, find people to hire. And so I've hired some friends. Um, I've hired some people through Laravel DFW that I didn't know. And that's been kind of exciting because I literally didn't know them at all. And then through this thing that I do in Dallas, uh, it turned into something where, hey, yeah, now I, I know him or I know her and they would be a really good candidate for the team. So for me, I find usually there's a lot of this like extra work that people can do, that, that I can do to create space where I'm not just like putting the job description online. I'm actually like going and investing my time and in, in myself into something and creating value like like a, a group of people that like Laravel in the DFW area and that will turn into even more value for myself because now I know people that I can ask questions or that I can contract work to or that I can hire and so in the early days I hired a couple of people and over time that has kind of progressed because then there's people that they know that we've hired um, and then like I said people that that I've met through Laravel DFW and other means that it's really just about finding good people and I think the point is just put yourself in places where you'll meet good people don't just rely on them to find you right so you you really went out and invested in community it sounds like a community of like-minded individuals tech-minded individuals but didn't just hire based on some resume you may have found, you know, on LinkedIn or somewhere else. You hired based on what you knew of that person, even outside of their technical skills. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, out of probably like the 15 people that I've hired, 15 or 20, I don't know, maybe two of them I hired based on their resumes. Most of them were like, I met them at the Laravel DFW meeting, or I met them on Twitter or something because we were having a conversation, and and then or or they were a friend of a friend or a friend of a of an employee at Musicbed, and they're like, yeah, well, this person's really good, and then we end up talking, and they have a really great like work ethic. And, you know, I, I think a, a lot now, it's not so much about the resume, it's about what you can do. And so I, I'm i gonna bring Tesla back up, but like I was watching their, their thing the other day and there was this intro that one of their VPs was doing for one of their artificial intelligence leads. And he was saying, yeah, he has a PhD from Stanford and all this stuff. And then Elon Musk says, oh yeah, whatever, like just bring him up here. like." It doesn't matter. And there were people talking about it like that it was kind of rude of Elon Musk to, to kind of like do that in the middle of this press conference. But there's all of this information out there about how he just really doesn't care about degrees and not so much that college or whatever isn't valuable, but just like accolades aren't valuable, even if it's winning a, a competition or getting a degree or whatever. It's like, no, what what have you actually built? What have you designed? What have you done? What, how much revenue have you increased or how many 
impressions have you been able to generate? Um, what is that interesting story that you told online that got a lot of views or something? That's what businesses really want to hear. And sometimes they don't know how to ask that, but really that's what they're looking for. And if you can be bold and if you can put together a story of yourself where you say, Hey, we did this and this is how it helped customers. And we did this and like here metrics here and actual numbers for how it changed things. Usually that's the most compelling. Sure. Right. So tell me in, just in music bed in general and the product you've made, this is jumping back a little higher level, but what, what are you most proud of? Probably, probably what we've done just to change our culture. I think every six months we're able to accomplish something that before we didn't really think was possible. And maybe we felt like we needed to be doing it. I remember automated testing was a really big thing that was like this hurdle that we had to overcome. And I I think that is for a lot of people. And um, even like, even using version control several years ago was like, how do you use that reliably? Cause we, we used it from day one, but like, what is the best way to do code reviews and all this stuff. And over time, all of that comes into focus. And so I'm kind of continuously proud of just seeing those things come about where it's like, hey, we have a really good testing practice. Hey, we have a really good uh, version control practice. A lot of that comes down to people because you know I've, I've kind of found my job is to invest in the people and, and help them become the best version of themselves. And so it's really cool whenever, um, I was actually, I was just talking about this with someone like last week. There's things that like, you know, need to be done. And you're like, man, our business needs this or our team needs this or the product needs this. And you can push and push and push and push and push. And it never gets done. There's always this struggle and you can kind of feel it and you're frustrated. And then randomly it'll just click and it'll just happen. And normally it's when you're like out of town or you're like not present, you're doing something else. And it's like, man, why did that just like work like that? I've been trying to do that for forever. And a lot of times for me that's happened when someone on my team like took something up and owned it and did it themselves because they wanted to do it. And it's better than I would have even done it. It's It actually like exists now in reality. And it's super cool because I just get super proud of the team because I mean, it's just impressive. It's impressive to see the thing done, but then like to know that I can trust these people and that they care deeply about it. And I am insufficient. Like I I have to have these people, like they provide so much value. Um, I think I get proud about that kind of thing because it to me is like, man, having a good team is super, super important. How did you, how did you and the team respond when you, uh, when you found those mistakes out, when you found a bug or you found out that, oh man, we just cost our company money or we cost a, an artist money or, or something like that. How, how did you respond and get that issue resolved? Yeah. I mean, I think we always try to respond to the challenges with like an optimism that it's usually no one's fault. Sheryl Sandberg has said at one point or another that 
people are always looking for if it's a person's fault or if it's a system or like a a group of people's fault like society at large and she always feels like it's half and half that people are responsible for their actions and that also the other 50 percent is a team or a company or or a society or a country we're we're all responsible at the same time and so whenever mistakes are made i always really approach the team and say hey what could you have done differently and then what could we have all done differently because usually there's like a process that doesn't exist so if it was a blessing in disguise maybe it's that something breaks and then it helps us decide how we're going to do code reviews differently or that it it shows us how we're going to change the way that we talk to one another or communicate about something and that solves a bunch of other mistakes in the future that that we won't encounter because we now have a better process so i think every mistake is is really an opportunity because it's just shining a light on an area where a process is broken down or something isn't fully thought through and unless somebody is being malicious or not really taking things seriously as long as they're getting better i think mistakes always have to be viewed with this like pat on the shoulder take them out to lunch say it's okay and then say okay now how are you going to do it better and how are we going to do it better like it's this equal part challenge and equal part like hey let's just go play smash brothers and like not think about the chaos that we just caused um, cause that's the only way to do it. Like, yeah, things are going to go awry, but it doesn't help to fret about it or to yell about it or get mad about it. So what's the future look like for music bed, for your product, uh, for your team? You know, what, what's, what's the, what is on the horizon? I might go back just a little bit. Cause I said that I would kind of talk a little bit about like the technical side of Laravel and how we like upgraded it. So more recently, we actually swapped out the entire front end of our site. So it used to be served up from Laravel using Blade, um, which is their templating engine. And now it's actually a full single page app built in React. So um, I think that just kind of shows some of the flexibility that really you can use a lot of technologies together. And so we were pretty excited about that advancement because it really gives us flexibility in terms of what we can do on the front end. So uh, we can do some pretty cool stuff like doing um, some lazy loading uh, easier than before and more efficient where it's not making the browser crawl. Um, we can do like loading states. So, we, I mean, we try to be as fast as possible, but in the case that you ever do see a loading screen, we can do some nice uh, Facebook is kind of the one who started doing this. I think Twitter does it too but where you'll see kind of the outline of things before it loads. And maybe there's a little bit of animation to it so that you can get context for what the page is going to look like before it loads. And then once the content's filled in, you're not like scanning the page to like figure out what you're supposed to read. Like you, you're already centered on the page. There's some really cool stuff like that um, that we've been able to do. And so for the future, for us, you know, we just launched subscription in the fall, and so that's going really well. We're excited about the opportunities that that gives filmmakers to use more great music in their in their projects. And 
we're just continuing to to upgrade that. We're shipping updates to how Sync ID works, which is our content ID clearance system. I mean, we're kind of continuously upgrading that because we want it to be the fastest clearance possible. So when we launched that, there really wasn't a lot. There were there weren't a lot of things like it. There was maybe one or two that were similar, but even those were not as fast or as flexible actually. So like for us, what we're able to do now is if a video gets uploaded to YouTube, the system will monitor it and see a, a claim come in. And as soon as that claim comes in, it can check to see if that filmmaker has a, an active subscription. And it will tell YouTube to release that claim immediately. We really worked hard to make that really fast. So I'd, I'll give a second just to say thank you to the team because they did a really, really good job on it. Because we wanted it to be cleared in under 60 seconds. So as soon as you upload the video, it's cleared immediately because that's a big pain point for filmmakers. And in fact, we, we've actually been able to get it, I think under 10 seconds. And, and sometimes like YouTube sends out an email whenever you get a claim and it'll say, hey, this song or piece of content was found in your video. It's owned by this, this uh, company or label or whatever. And so you now have a copyright claim. And then we would follow it up with an email after it's cleared that says, hey, uh, just wanted to let you know, um, we've cleared that claim for you. Thanks for being a customer of Musicbed or a subscriber of Musicbed. And you're good to go. See you next time, you know? And because it's operating so fast, we actually will send our email before they even get YouTube's email that they have a claim. And sometimes YouTube won't even send an email because it's clearing so fast. So it's kind of fun when we can beat some of those systems in terms of speed. So for, for you, you started out as developer number one. You, you built this um, you know, amazing, you brought the MVP up to snuff, up to code as a, to a you know, world-class platform. You've progressed the product, you've hired a team. You, know, you, were the, you were the director of engineering or VP of engineering. Um, you were leading the engineering team. And now you've made a recent jump to a different role being VP of operations. Tell me about that. Tell me how that's been, uh, how that has been and, and how that's been different since your last role. Yeah. So really a lot of that came down to taking what I had done with engineering and trying to apply some of that to the whole company and try to organize our communication and systemize some things that didn't have systems. And so I'm always really keen on trying to amplify what people already are doing. So if someone's really good at marketing or really good at sales or really good at engineering or A&R design, it doesn't really matter. Usually there's communication gaps that can be filled. And it's not so much that I'm the one communicating or filling it as much as just creating the systems to make it happen. And really people step into that and and they have to be the one to own it, but they do. And, and they love having like kind of everyone think about that and work together so that, hey, marketing and engineering can work together on this and any inefficiencies or like issues that they had in the past, some like those can be resolved over time so that each new project, they don't run into the same things. So it's different in that I'm working a lot more with people now. I don't really do as much on the technical side 
um, because the director of engineering who's there now is is doing that. I'm still really enjoying it and, and I still have a hand in like the product design because I, I kind of approach it more from like a business perspective now then those get those designs and ideas get handed to the engineering team so that they can build it. I've been I've been enjoying it for sure. Um, I think it's a natural progression and it's also allowed a lot of really great people to start owning some things kind of like as a senior engineer level or director of engineering, like all of those, everybody's really stepped up and I think they're also really excited for their opportunities. So can you name an architect, CTO, a tech person you look up to and, uh, or, or it could be a, a leader in general and kind of elaborate on why you look up to them? One person I, I look up to is Seth Godin, who's a marketing author and he writes every day. So he has a blog, writes every single day. And sometimes it's just a few sentences and other times it's longer, but, but he has a lot of ideas and um, probably like half of his blog posts aren't awesome. But then like every once in a while, there would be some really good ones that just like probe into these deep parts of business or personal things, you know, and, and you're just thinking, man, that's so good. So he's kind of on this journey, I think, being an author and, and consultant that I don't really want to do what he does. So I don't know if like looking up to him in that way is exactly the right thing. but. I do like basically read his blog every day and I have for several years now. In terms of like tech people, I really think that the the coolest people to watch are those that are doing really different things. You know, I've mentioned Tesla a couple of times on here. Um, Elon Musk gets a, a bad rap a lot of times and he deserves it most of the time. <laughs> but I think he's he and his team are doing things that no one else are doing and the work culture there at tesla and at spacex is terrible from all the reports that that come out and so there's this kind of weird dissonance of trying to figure out how to value people and also change the world i'm not even sure if it's possible but i do look up to that aspiration that he and his team have they're like oh you know we need to do a private space company and we need to go to Mars or we need to build fully autonomous vehicles and they need to be all electric and I mean there's like so many things about that first being all electric then second that they're going to be autonomous like all of this stuff is super super challenging and so I think for me I look up to to them because it just makes any any other problem seem very easy and it's like, well, if they're even doing half of what they say they're going to do, surely I can do this. Um, I shouldn't be daunted by, you know, talking with this person or giving bad news to a leader or uh, having a crucial conversation with a team member or, you know, thinking that we can't ever build this product. Like, it's too difficult. Sure. And so then it's just about, okay, what's the hard work that I need to do to get it done? Um, who do I need to talk to to get it done? I'm sure there's a bunch I'm leaving out in terms of people that inspire me, but those are, those are some. If you could go back to the beginning, you know, what would you do differently 
what advice would you give to you know, younger technology developers or tech people or entrepreneurs or people that are just getting into this game that that you've been doing for a while and been successful at what what sort of advice would you give them the biggest thing that i've learned in the last 5 or 6 years is to always ask for forgiveness and never ask for permission and so that means that your butt's on the line so there's you have to do your research do your homework um so that when you walk into a room and you say we should do this or you know you're you have an idea of something to do if i if i'm like 50 50 no one's going to trust me but also if i do the research but i never say anything people aren't going to see me either in terms of like the value that i can bring to a situation so on a personal level I think it's always important to ask for forgiveness and that really applies to more than just business. It applies to, you know, if you want to go somewhere and do something, just go do it. There's no reason it, anything should hold you back. And, and really I think in, in so many ways that boldness, again, if you have a 90%, you know, success rate, then that time that you have an idea and you want to pitch it to a leader in your company, uh, it's probably going to get you another conversation with them. And I know friends who have kind of adopted some of these policies too. And it's like, they just start getting invited to meetings all the time. They're like, man, well, so-and-so always has good ideas. Like they should be in here. And that's really the way to get in the, get in a room. If you're like, man, I wish I was in the room when these decisions were made. It's like, well, just start doing valuable stuff and start, being a bit of like a a rebel in like a healthy way. Seth Godin has this thing about choosing yourself and, and don't wait to be picked. You know, if you're like a kid and people are, are picking you to play kickball or whatever, you can sit around and like wait to be picked and then feel bad if you don't get picked. Um, or if you want to be the next, you know, amazing musician, like you can go on The Voice or go on American Idol and hope the judges pick you um but then that's putting your destiny in the hands of someone else and so he he, he always says just pick yourself decide today that today is the day that i'm going to do what i think is best if you're a programmer and you want to build an app then build it and pick yourself and know that hey i can build stuff too i wish i would have learned that earlier because i was sometimes embarrassed about things but then I slowly just stopped getting embarrassed about stuff and realized, hey, like I can be confident with people. Um, again, it goes beyond work because even like with relationships, if you want to be friends with someone because you think they're cool, then be the one that says, hey, do you want to go to lunch? Whether you're whether you're a man or a woman or whatever, like like step out there and be be bold and just do the thing that you know you should be doing. That's great. Well, Tanner, thank you for being on the uh, on the show today. For sure. Thanks for inviting me on, Noah. This concludes a, another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is a production of TouchTap LLC and is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart, co-produced and edited by George Macharco. Special thanks to Deanna Chapman and Stephanie Campisi for their promotional support. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, 
Breaker, or the podcasting app of your choice. Make sure to check us out at codestory.co or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn.